KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Trump Watch is finished for this first episode of our show under its new name, Living in the USA. We'll start with the inauguration, of course. Later in the hour, we'll talk about progressives and Biden with Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And of course, Ella Taylor will provide her weekly recommendations for virus time viewing. But first, Joe Biden's inauguration. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Uh, always good to be here. It's particularly good to be here today as opposed to the last four years. Yes. I should just point out we're speaking a few hours after the inauguration. It's still Wednesday for us. Let's let's start with the fact that this has been a great day for America and really for the whole world. Donald Trump is no longer president and Joe Biden is. Yes, as a, uh, a songwriter once wrote, ding dong, the witch is dead. Uh, or at least, uh, you know, retired to Florida with uh, hopes that he uh, will not return. Uh, no, it, it, was, it was a pretty remarkable day. What struck me most about the day was that all of the sort of usual uh, assertions that are, are pro forma in normal American politics, uh, the value of democracy, the value of truth, were affirmed today and they were not pro forma because uh, of the misrule of Donald Trump, they needed to be reasserted again in speech and in action. They were definitely reasserted today in speech, in song, in prayer, in verse, in the inaugural address, uh, and are beginning to uh, be reasserted in action uh, even, even now through the executive orders that new President Joe Biden has signed this evening. And the entire event was carried out in defiance of the Trump mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th and cast a shadow over today's events, we now know what Trump supporters are capable of. It is frankly scary, but we can't be intimidated by their threats. And Joe Biden wasn't. And neither was anybody else on the platform, including the three former presidents. But uh, watching it, I couldn't help thinking. And of course, we've all been worrying for the last few days. Will the 20,000 National Guardsmen succeed in protecting this event? Well, it went off without a hitch, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, it did go off without a hitch. Uh, I live, I think, about maybe half a mile from the uh, northern perimeter of the you-can't-go-in-here zone, <laughs> uh, so it's pretty close. It, you know, it, it, just from a purely D.C. angle, had this been an otherwise normal year, that would have been, you know, a major disruption to people's daily lives. But because of COVID and the fact that, you know, the, the lockdown we have now of really downtown DC uh, didn't disrupt that many people's lives because due to COVID, we have not been going to our offices it was, you know, a peculiar variant on normal. What, where it was a huge variant on normal, of course, was in, in the public's ability to attend in person uh, the president's inaugural, which particularly one of the inaugurals I, I was out there for, which was Barack Obama's first inaugural in 2008, 
was a vast crowd of maybe 2 million people, you know, which when you live, as I do, close to downtown DC, you tend to notice. We didn't have that, but instead we had what always was going to be a socially distanced and much smaller crowd for the inauguration, but, uh, you know, looked at as performance, looked at as a national ceremony of renewal, it, I think, really went on without a hitch. And while I don't think Joe Biden's inaugural address, you know, reached the levels of eloquence of many of its predecessors, I think it certainly came across under the circumstances, as perhaps the most heartfelt inaugural address we've heard in a, in a very long time, maybe in our lifetimes. And it was a tricky challenge that he faced. On the one hand, it had to be upbeat and positive and reaffirming the future. On the other hand, he couldn't ignore what happened on January 6th. Uh, and he did, in fact, mention what he called our uncivil war. I thought quite nicely. Yeah, no, Uncivil War was a very good characterization, not just of the last couple weeks, but of decades, really, of American politics, which I think particularly began to be uncivil in the mid-1990s with the ascent of Newt Gingrich to the Speakership of the House, uh, bringing with him really the kind of politics of destroy your enemy that Congress had not usually fallen prey to before Gingrich. And also in the mid-90s, we saw really the rise of right-wing talk radio, which had been around for a while, but hadn't really achieved uh, the level of, of reach and of prominence that it, it's had since, and the founding of, of Fox News, all of which imperiled uh, another value which uh, Joe Biden had to affirm today in his uh, inaugural address, that there are tr there's truth and there are lies. You know, and for some time now, We've had generally conservative intellectuals bemoaning uh, the curse of postmodernism in which everything was viewed as relative and nothing could really be viewed as, as the truth or the lie. Um, as of today, they finally had a president who condemned that notion, but uh, all of the evidence for the uh, danger of that notion that the president adduced was the kind of right-wing uh, pernicious lies that have infected our, our political speech and our national spirit for some time now. And as you say, how good it was that this was such a normal inauguration. You know, the singers sang, the preachers preached, the president-elect gave his inaugural address, and the poet the poet actually got to me in a way I had never expected. This young woman, Amanda Gorman, she called herself a skinny black girl. And she said, we will raise this wounded world. She's 22. She's 22. And, you know, she, she delivered her poem in a kind of rap tempo and using the kind of rhymes we have been reaccustomed to uh, by virtue of, of, of rapping you know, which had kind of gone out of fashion uh, in, in modern verse beginning about 1910. But uh, really, I think in her own, uh, you know, Quicksilver street kid way, delivered actually the substance of Joe Biden's message, I think perhaps even more effectively than Joe Biden delivered it. Uh, it, it was really moving. It was stunning because none of us have ever experienced a 
the poem part of an inaugural as being really the, the key to the inauguration, no one expected that, uh, least of all from some young person we have all never heard of. Uh, and yet there she was, and it was a glory of the, uh, of the ceremony. So pulling the lens uh, back here, you know, this today marks a big challenge to you and me and our uh, profession. For the last uh, four years, Donald Trump has dominated our thinking. It's sort of like he colonized our minds. That was the one thing he was really good at, getting into the headlines every day, coming up with more and more outrageous and infuriating stuff, sometimes even stupid stuff. It didn't matter to him as long as he was on the front page every day, as long as we had to think about what he was saying. Now it's over. We don't have to think about Trump uh, every day. We're going to return to normal normal punditry. What what uh, is Joe Biden doing right? What does he need to do better? It's, uh, it's going to take a while to retool our thinking, I think. Yes, yes. As uh, Martin Luther King said at the end of his I Have a Dream speech, free at last, free at last. <laughs> Thank God Almighty, we are free yes. at last. And you no, know, I mean, there's no question that, you know, one lobe of our brains had been, uh, you know, had the inescapable presence of Donald Trump for the last four plus years. And uh, now it, it, it doesn't. I mean, he will occasionally uh, come to our attention uh, and his misdeeds will certainly be before, before us all as the uh, Senate considers the impeachment that the House has uh, voted against him. But Trump himself uh, a huge presence in in the you know the national mind and you know the national stomach uh, is is uh, a much reduced presence now and that that that's a big deal. The, yeah, so we get back we get back to a certain sense to uh, normal journalism with uh, all of its more prosaic uh, uh, highs and lows the, than 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 Trump. Uh, but uh, you know, I as a citizen certainly welcome that, even though as a journalist. Uh, it means that uh, I won't really be having probably the level of rants uh, that I, I've been able to write, uh, you know, express in writing for the last four years. The one thing we do have to think about on the Trump score once the impeachment is over is what we learned on January 6th, which is that even though the Trump mob failed utterly to delay by more than an hour, uh, more than a couple of hours, the certification of Biden as president, they did prove what they were capable of. They could do this. And for them, that was a great victory. This is not a one-shot deal. This is not the end. This is one step in what they regard as the future of their movement. So they were only a few thousand of them. There were, what, 73 or 74 million people voted for Trump. That's more than voted for any other candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. We have to be concerned about the relationship of those 74 million people to those couple of thousand insurrectionists. And, uh, and there is this growing split that we can see in the Republican Party. And that's something that matters a lot to us. It could have very good effect for us or it could be very bad. Yeah, well, I mean, the normal calculus would be that a split in the Republican Party, uh, just perforce, 
benefits the Democrats, uh, that, you know, if the Republicans really can't get their act together. You know, and the Republican Party in so many ways in the last four years has simply been the action arm of Donald Trump's phobias and his hatreds. If you're Mitt Romney, let's say, or Susan Collins, you think you can reinvent the party so it gets back to sort of normal republicanism. Uh, and, you know, Mitch McConnell, in his own uh, infuriating way, probably wants, you know, wants to get back to uh, normal republicanism, too. It's not clear if they can do that, given the anger within the Republican base. And believe me, there were that anger extends well beyond these, whatever it was, a few thousand people who uh, invaded the Capitol on January 6th, although it's not, uh, you know, for, for, for most, of, most of the Republicans, that anger doesn't reach, doesn't reach that level. I should add that the remarkable footage that the uh, New Yorker uh, photojournalist uh, shot of that occupation, I think, uh, among the, some of the Republicans I know, really uh, was a, a, a shock and a turnoff uh, to them. Uh, and and I, I think that may have finally uh, more, of a, more of a consequence uh, for the Republicans than the reporting that has gone so far uh, on, uh, on what happened on January 6th. But, you know, it, it is both from a political standpoint, it's a peril and it's an opportunity. I mean, if, if the Republican Party really uh, decides to move in that direction, as it appears to be doing in Arizona, which the party is already beginning to lose. Uh, both senators now are, are Democrats uh, in, in Arizona, but the state party uh, is determined to condemn, uh, you know, people like Cindy McCain uh, for uh, being in the old Republican model, um, you know, that that marginalizes the Republican party further. Uh, but the question is, as it gets further marginalized, uh, does the level of violent uh, upheaval increase? And we'll have to see. So for four years, it's been horrible. It's been sometimes frightening. And now we're in a, a, a new world where uh, we will be, uh, as I say, doing the progressive critique of the mainstream Democrats, pushing Biden to do more, to go further, uh, to do it faster. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of frustrations along the way. There's going to be a lot of disappointments along the way. But, but I have to say, these frustrations and disappointments are part of ordinary life and so much better than what we've been through. Yeah. And there's going to be some gratification, too. I mean, how much big change Biden can accomplish, I think, ultimately depends on whether we can get you know, some reluctant Democratic uh, senators to support scrapping the filibuster, which can be done on uh, in the level of individual legislation, as well as just a flat uh, elimination of the 60 vote cloture requirement. Uh, so, I mean, that, that I think really will determine the, the degree to which progressives uh, such as ourselves uh, really think that the Biden administration has made a, a great progress. Uh, I, I am inclined to think that the political uh, forces within the Democratic Party are such uh, that there, there really is a, a major push uh, for progressive innovation 
and that Joe Biden has always gone with, uh, you know, the flow within the Democratic Party and understands that the flow is definitely uh, progressive. The flow is definitely progressive. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, great to talk with you on such a great day. Indeed. Thanks for having me, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Democratic majority in the new House is smaller than the last one. Democrats lost 11 House seats in 2020, but most of those were not members of the Progressive Caucus, which is hoping to play a bigger role this term. For comment, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, he's well-known around here as the former KPFK program director, and he's been a crucial part of this program for many years. Now he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. It's a grassroots organization with ties to the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Alan, as you know, Trump Watch is finished. Welcome to the first edition of Living in the USA. Well, Fantastic. It's great to be here and still alive in the USA. Well, the new chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus is Pramila Jayapal. We've interviewed her here with your help. Uh, The stars of the CPC include lots of our people from L.A., Karen Bass, Ted Lieu, Maxine Waters, also Katie Porter from Irvine, Barbara Lee from Berkeley, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, AOC from the Bronx. These are all people we talk about a lot here. You have some terrific new members who were just elected. Corey Bush from Missouri and Jamal Bowman from New York. Tell us a little about them. Well, they're both fantastic. Jamal Bowman, of course, was a principal in the Bronx, uh, and he defeated Elliot Engel, uh, who was a very powerful Democrat uh, in a big primary upset in the New York primary this past year. Uh, Jamal Bowman is, uh, you know, pretty much with the squad and the Bernie Sanders agenda across the board, um, and he doesn't pull any punches. Um, If there's anybody in Congress who pulls even fewer punches, it's Cori Bush, who has now joined the Congress from, and she's, and and I mean that because it's necessary. And, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it's absolutely pointed, direct, and uh, poignant and meaningful interventions that she engages in. In, in her public declarations and absolutely necessary. I'll hopefully get to return to the theme of what I think is necessary for progressives in the country right now. And Cori Bush, again, uh, fully um, in uh, ha- advocates for policies that are in the lineage of the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, who were freshmen last term, and Bernie Sanders. So we see um, a really, um, powerful, muscular, as it were, um, left progressivism, a social democracy, even democratic socialism, uh, that is getting full voice now in the House. And these are not just two members in a body that has 435 people. These are very prominent new members. So we're recording this the day before Biden's inauguration. It will be broadcast the day after Biden's uh, inauguration. So I want to talk about what we know about Biden's day one plans and what you and PDA think about them, the highlights and, and, and the problem areas. 
Uh, one problem area I noticed right off the bat was his plans for an executive order on student debt. He's going to extend the pause on federal student loan repayments and interest. That's that's not what we had in mind. Well, okay. Uh, my understanding is that Joe Biden will be um, releasing um, in mid-February the second half of his stimulus economic response. Uh, yes, disappointing that student debt was not mentioned when he delivered uh, the introduction to this last week, um, but we're looking for student debt to be a part of it, whether it goes forward via um, executive action or through legislature. Uh, what you're speaking about, of course, is specific to um, the moratorium that had existed and has now been extended. And it's essential that during the pandemic, people not have to pay um, their uh, student loans that are federally held or have the interest accrue on them. So um, that's that's essential. And we'll look for more in the stimulus package and we'll look for more him, from him on that front beyond even the stimulus packages if the stimulus packages are only uh, partial. And what do you think about the stimulus package? It's a lot bigger than the Obama stimulus was in his first 100 days. Uh, is it enough? Is it targeted right? Um, well, of course, I would like it to see it have other uh, components uh, that it doesn't have. Uh, there are very important things like, again, why exactly we're paying COBRA, as a, which is means, the, sorry, that's a bit of an inside baseball term, why we're uh, paying private health insurance companies when we could just put everybody who's lost their health insurance on Medicare for all. There's something called the Healthcare Emergency Act that wasn't included. There are a lot of things on many fronts like that that really should be in there. Um, yes, it's uh, it's generous as a start, and he says the second half is coming in mid-February, so or at least that's my understanding around mid-February, so we'll look to see what that is. I would say that, yes, it, there's very parallel crises. Of course, they're different, but when Obama came into office in 2009 with the complete implosion of the global financial system that had occurred uh, and the Great Recession that was obviously uh, just pouring forth at that moment and obviously the crisis that Biden inherits, um, I would say that so far, I would give him better marks than Obama in terms of the response that's occurred here. On climate, he has said one of his first acts will be to sign an order returning the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement. He said he's going to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, which has been great uh, concern of ours, let us say, and a great target of a wonderful uh, uh, movement. That's certainly a good start on climate. Well, uh, but the biggest of the tar sands related pipelines is being constructed right now in your home state of Minnesota. It's Enbridge Line 3, and we'd really love to see action from uh, Joe Biden on that. Um, if I may, because we may not get back to it, I want to point out that the elections of the 2020 cycle are not over, especially in terms of the Progressive Caucus, John Wiener. I'd be remiss if I did not mention that a great progressive champion is uh, going to be running to fill Martha Fudge's seat when she becomes the head of housing and uh, urban development over at HUD, and that's Nina Turner in Ohio 11th. Also, with Deb Holland moving into um, the interior secretary position in New Mexico 1, brilliant progressive. Now, there's not actually a primary there. It's determined through a sort of inside process inside the New, New Mexico Democratic Party who the nom nominee will be in a safe blue Democratic district. But if it's Antoinette Cedillo-Lopez and then it's Nina Turner, and by the way, another New Mexico Democrat, new freshman named Teresa Lega-Fernandez, absolutely fantastic. Also brilliant progressive. As you see, the Progressive Caucus and the Bernie Sanders wing of the Progressive Caucus growing bigger, growing stronger. And Antoinette Cedillo-Lopez, her voice will definitely be heard if she gets into the House. So look out for that name coming out of New Mexico 1 and Nina Turner coming out of Ohio 11 special elections.
So let's talk just for a minute here about your group, Progressive Democrats of America, in relation to the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You have what you like to call an inside-outside strategy. It's not just supporting candidates and legislation. Okay. Well, the inside-outside strategy and then, of course, the inside aspect of that is for PDA, its relationship to getting progressives elected as a 527 independent expenditure federal PAC, and also our relationships on our lobbying wings, which are our 501c4 nonprofit wings, uh, to uh, groups like the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the brilliant um, organization that now is affiliated called the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center. Both have existed for a while with Pramila Jayapal's leadership in particular. And she, by the way, is just entering her fifth year in Congress. So at the beginning of her third year, she assumed the co-leadership of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Now she has the sole leadership. She's brought about a kind of a discipline into the ranks of the Progressive uh, Congressional Caucus, which we've never seen before. And, um, and now we have a very strong outside affiliated organization that PDA works with as well, the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center. So Pramila Jayapal is a brilliant, brilliant, not only politician, but political organizer. And it really shows, and the strengthening of the progressives on Capitol Hill will be something like we have not seen before. So look for that. And by the way, I know there's been a lot of hubbub and talk about uh, things that progressives could do with this very small uh, majority of uh, in the House. I, of course, think in terms of outside pressure, yes, outside pressure, we need to push on the moderate Democrats. We need to push on every elected official. We have to push on the Biden administration. We should also call upon, of course, the Progressive Progressive Caucus. We should make suggestions as to what can be done when there's such a small majority in the House in terms of demanding that things get included. And I think we'll see responsiveness. I do believe we will see really excellent and pragmatic responsiveness from the Congressional Progressive Caucus in this cycle. Getting back to Biden and his initiatives, um, he's appointing... Uh, Janet Yellen, as Secretary of the Treasury, you know a lot about economic policy. What do you think about Janet Yellen, especially in comparison to some of her predecessors? Well, you know, yes, it's it's certainly an improvement. This has been a position that's been held by Goldman Sachs for quite a while, or you yes. know, direct ties to Goldman Sachs. And that's not true of Yellen. Yellen um, was, uh, you know, a, a career um, Fed bureaucrat and um, with an academic background. And um, she was, as the head of the Fed, which is arguably an even more powerful position than the Treasury Secretary, um, I think she did what she could do in the course of the very slow recovery of the Great Recession to continue the, to not give in to people who were worried about inflation and therefore to use monetary policy as best as she could to try to combat unemployment. In other words, given the instruments at her disposal in that context, she was doing what she could do for the average person, more than we had seen out of that position, of course, uh, under Alan Greenspan all those years, of course, during that phase, and then even Ben Bernanke. So now she's a Treasury Secretary. In the past, she has said some things that are a little unnerving about over what I would consider too great concern around deficits. Since she has been was about to be named and then named for this position, she has actually signaled in the other direction that now is not the time to worry about deficits. I think there's always too much concern, especially among the recently, uh, the, the, the recent uh, uh, Democratic Party uh, over deficits. This is something that, as you know, when you have a Republican president, the re Republicans drop. 
when you have a Democratic president, the Republicans insist upon, uh, you know, deficit discipline to the hilt, and the Democrats go along with it. That means in terms of um, fiscal balance sheets, it has been the Democratic Party that has been the conservative party, the austerian party at the federal level, more than the Republican Party, okay? Because given austerity or tax cuts, you know, you would take tax cuts if you're a working person, right? So the idea of not raising taxes on working people in the middle class and building up the deficit through progressive fiscal spending is a necessity right now. And right now, Yellen is not signaling for austerity or fiscal discipline. This is very, very, very important to look out for. There could, in fact, be no tea leaves that are more important to read, than, well, other than the stuff relating to the vaccine and COVID, of course, than you know, what Janet Yellen is saying about deficit, what she's saying, what she's not saying, what she's signaling, hugely, hugely important. Very central figure in the Biden administration. So thank you for bringing Janet Yellen. You up. mentioned uh, COVID-19, the virus and the, and the vaccine, which of course raises the larger question of medical care in America. PDA has been a big supporter of Medicare for all for a while now. Uh, where does PDA stand on the the failures of the vaccine rollout, which are especially painful here in Los Angeles, and on what can be accomplished now about uh, medical policy for everybody. Big, big set of questions. On the vaccine distribution, we as an organization, and this now leaves the left-right spectrum, let's drop that for a second. We actually, as an organization, are very committed to doing what we can to mobilize our base to support in the distribution of the vaccine as best we can. And uh, in the spirit of uh, just trying to help the whole process along, save what we feel is uh, constructive advice for the Biden administration. Of course, if we see real failures and real blind spots, we'll raise our voice more loudly, but we're even gonna get involved, hopefully, in what we're calling a new kind of GOTV project, not get out the vote, but get out the vaccine. And we may be involved in phone banking, especially into uh, working class and poor communities uh, to provide information about where people can get the vaccine. So PDA is fully committed just on that level of sort of social service. Now, in terms of Medicare for all, as we all know, Joe Biden did not support Medicare for all as a candidate. Uh, Pramila Jayapal was on, uh, was very involved in, in overseeing and involved with the um, group that was formed between, she was a supporter of Bernie Sanders, the president and the Biden team before the period where Biden accepted the nomination at the Democratic convention. And I know that she feels that the public option that is going to be presented is something that she feels now can be finessed in a way that it provides an avenue in an easier way logistically than previous iterations of the public option towards achieving Medicare for all. So I do think there'll be pragmatic support, but she will be introducing, uh, again, the full-on new Medicare for all version that her and Sanders in the Senate will introduce. It's even more refined than last time. We will do everything to, we can get, do to get as many co-sponsors as possible. And don't get me wrong, Yes, there are pragmatics around supporting things like the public option, but the public option relative to Medicare for all is still a lousy option. We need Medicare for all in the society. The Congressional Budget Office just did a report. If we had Medicare for all, we would save, get this sum done, $600 billion a year from the wow. nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. That's how much money is being channeled uh, away from the pockets of the American people to health, uh, the health insurance industry in this country uh, because of, well, well, because of, I think we can fill in the blank. <laughs> we, um, we know why. 
Uh, uh, a little bit into the weeds here. Uh, Katie Porter, one of our uh, favorites and and uh, a real star. The, the maybe the great, well, one of the greatest stars of the first term uh, people uh, elected last time around, mostly for her work on the House Financial Services Committee, where she challenged bank executives and financial regulators and created some wonderful video clips of those confrontations. Nancy Pelosi has just refused to reappoint her to that committee this year. And some of our friends are saying that was because she challenged Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, to pay his workers a, a living wage. Jamie Dimon is a billionaire and a Democratic donor. Uh, do you think, uh, and, and this sort of exposes some of the conflicts within the Democratic Party between the Wall Street, what we call the Wall Street faction, and uh, and the progressive Democrats. We, of course, would love to see uh, Katie Porter be uh, renamed onto that committee. Uh, we were very upset to hear that. We have been looking into any of the sort of conflicting stories we've heard about the background to that story, and we have poised a petition that we will distribute calling upon uh, Democratic leadership to reinstate Katie Porter on the Finance Committee. Um, I do have to say, and I'm remiss for not saying this earlier, when it comes to Medicare for All, we will be involved with our state PAC here in California, PDACA, and our 501c4 uh, lobbying organizations advocating for single-payer universal health care in California and pressing Gavin Newsom to adhere to his campaign promises to pursue this. This is something that passed the California State Senate in the past, never got through the assembly. We want to see it we were going to make sure that he has all the waivers and knows how to get all the waivers to achieve this. We feel if we do get single-payer universal health care in California, it's not the optimal pathway. It's best to have this done at the federal level. But if we achieve it in California, I think it'll break the back of the insurance industry. It's the largest state in the country. Other people will see how advantageous it is to the economy of California, the people of California, and we'll see it sweep across the country from there. So we're looking to push this right very soon. It's really launching this February. Uh, and uh, we're going to be calling upon Gavin Newsom to pursue uh, single-payer universal health care here in California. Well, just to pull the lens uh, back in closing here, this is a great moment in our lives where Donald Trump is over. There's no more Trump watch. Undoubtedly, he'll still be, you know, saying things in Mar-a-Lago, but it's going to be a whole new world starting today. And uh, this has got to be pretty pretty darn exciting for progressive Democrats of America. We're really psyched about seeing Trump go away. Okay, but big picture here, John, I think uh, we're in a situation now where we have three competing sort of ideological perspectives. I mean, we're looking very broad stroke in the United States. We have the reactionary, largely very racist right wing that follows Donald Trump. We have from the Mitt Romney wing of the Republican Party through the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, the neoliberal center, and we have the progressives now. Now, here's the thing about the progressive movement right now. We do have to work with what we have to try to achieve things for the population. We're a large enough force that we have to have real tangible victories. Like any political movement, we have to achieve that. People will not support a political movement unless you achieve tangible victories. But I'll leave with this. The progressive politics in the country are the only politics that respond to the needs capital N, capital E, capital D and S of American society at this point. And John, think of it this way. If you take the other um, technological industrialized countries in the world that are on the same plane as the United States of America. So we're talking the East Asian countries of South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, then throw in Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, and Canada. 
and the United States. You take the index of wealth away. The United States is at the bottom of the social indices, almost rank bottom on every meaningful criteria. You know, wealth inequality, poverty, homelessness, health, diet, education, go down the line, okay? And there are many others to throw in there. We basically, for the general population, are approaching a failed society. We have mass homelessness, mass incarceration, an absolutely imbalanced and racist criminal justice system. We need the, the, the progressives are the only of those three ideologies that even present the idea of making changes significantly such that they improve the lives of the American people in all of those ways. We have to recognize that the moderate Democrats and the neoliberal Republicans are effectively a conservative political formation that represent a status quo ante. The racist Republican right, everybody with a soul should reject them. So the progressives really need to achieve. It's time for us to continue to build the movement, present this kind of cohesive vision to the American people and win some victories. Alan, final thoughts? Yeah, please check out Progressive Democrats of America at pdamerica.org. And also we have our most um, ambitious plan ever, which is to have congressional liaisons in every congressional district in the country. We still have a few openings in Southern California, by the way. So please email me if you're interested at alan, A-L-A-N, at pdamerica.org, and you will be representing the progressive movement to your local congressional representative. pdamerica.org. Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and part of living in the USA. Alan, thanks for doing this. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. And so once again, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hello, John. Glad to be on the news show. Well, as you know, Trump Watch, as the name of our show, is finished. Today is the first episode of Living in the USA, and you, you are one of the people who know that Living in the USA is the title of a Chuck Berry song. It is, and I know because, strangely, from having been in Moscow in, I think, 1997 or 98 for the Moscow Film Festival, and I went for a stroll just to clear my head in between the, the movies um, and uh, in a local park where I'd been walking days before to see lots of toppled st statues of Stalin and Lenin. Instead, there was a, a vast crowd and they were shouting something that I couldn't quite hear um, I thought that perhaps there'd been a coup. And instead, it turned out to be a, a Chuck Berry concert. concert, uh, And they were all shouting, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck. And he was singing, living, living in the USA. So it was just an absolutely wonderful moment. Wow. 
Well, we are recording this on Tuesday, the day before the end of the Trump presidency and the inauguration of Joe Biden. Today, we want to talk about a documentary about one of Trump's favorite world leaders, King Kim Jong-un of North Korea. The film is Assassins, and it's about the assassination of Kim's brother in a crowded airport in Malaysia by two teenage girls. It's a wild story aided and abetted by eight uh, North Koreans and one uh, who identified as Japanese. Um, I'm sure that our listeners probably remember this event in, in 2017, where in fact, he was the half-brother of King Jong, Jong-um. Uh, and uh, his name was King Jong, Kim Jong-nan. Um, he was murdered in broad daylight at Kuala Lumpur Airport in Malaysia. Certainly by two young women who everybody thought was part of a conspiracy to kill him um, as and uh, that this was directly plotted by Kim Jong-un, which it clearly was. The film is a is a documentary directed by Ryan White, uh, who also made the documentary Ask Dr. Ruth, a very delightful documentary about Ruth Westheimer. Um, his subject is much less delightful here, but he and his and his producer, Jessica Hargrave, have made an absolutely marvelous, gripping and extremely skillful story, which is in fact three stories for the price of one. <laughs> one is a murder mystery in documentary form um, that is about whether there's, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, that there were two young women who ran up to King Jong Nam and smeared uh, VX chemical on his face and he died um, an hour later. Um, but the question is, uh, did they know that that's what they were doing? And there is a very clear answer to that at the end of the documentary. Um, so that part is just, you know, the twists and turns of it, which are documented by the director and also by uh, journalists who were two journalists who were covering the uh, trial of these two young women and also the quite heroic uh, lawyers for their defense. The second story is a appalling story of international intrigue and the lengths that a dictator will go to eliminate um, his rival. Kim Jong-nam was in fact the favorite to inherit um, Kim Jong-il's mantle, but uh, he fell out of favor and there's no time to to say why and spent much of his time traveling through Asia questioning the legitimacy of the totally inexperienced um, Kim Kim Jong-un. So there was no love lost between them. And in fact, um, there's evidence that several several attempts were made to uh, assassinate him. This one succeeded. Um, and the third story uh, is an absolutely heartbreaking tale of the vulnerability to exploitation of women actually all over Asia, because this story expands from um, Malaysia, which is one of the few countries in the world that has diplomatic relations with North Korea, and that is a, is a very powerful uh, factor in all of this. Um, to Indonesia, where one of the young women came from, 
and Vietnam, where the other came from. One was from um, a city, her name wasn't, she was from a, a very poor um, family in uh, Indonesia who has a, a tragic story long before she came to the airport. Um, and the other was a much more middle-class young woman from Vietnam who wanted to desperately to be an actress. Both of them were very hooked into the whole instant fame uh, messages that you get on social media, and that becomes uh, made them vulnerable as pawns um, in the hands of a group, a team that King jo Kim Jong Un sent to train them. Um, and also threaten them uh, and flatter them into committing the, this crime. And they did this by telling them they were going to be in a series of prank videos, which are, that's a phenomenon that's apparently very, very uh, popular in Asia. And so they committed this crime. Uh, and what Ryan White very skillfully does is to show all the steps that show clearly that they had no idea what they were doing. And in fact, we're very shocked to wake up the next day after this prank video to discover that they were being hunted down by the police uh, and then they were arrested and brought to trial. So it's a, it's, the ins and outs of this are in incredibly layered film. There isn't a moment of dead time here, and he's not hyping the drama, the melodrama. It just was what it was, um, and uh, it was only really through um, a great deal of diplomacy and some very dedicated lawyering that brought about a solution that nobody was nobody expected. Ryan White says that he was wanted to time, I mean, I think he spent three years documenting this, but he wanted to time the release of the movie to what everybody expected would be um, a guilty verdict for both young women. And uh, in Malaysia, a guilty verdict in a crime like this means instant uh, execution. And he wanted to time the, the movie as a kind of memorial to them. That is not what happened. And I don't want to spoil things by, by detailing this too much. But it is, a, I highly recommend uh, the movie, which is available on Amazon, uh, YouTube, Google Play, uh, and several others for rent um, for a small uh, for a small fee. So terrific movie. One of the fascinating things to me about this story is that this is not just about two uh, brothers in a ruling family who fell out and didn't like each other anymore. Uh, China provided sanctuary to the brother, uh, King, King, Kim Jong-nam, because they believe that if necessary, Kim Jong-un could be removed and replaced. So this actually was a much more than a, <clears throat> a family rivalry or, or a dispute. Yes, and what's more, he was working for the CIA as well, which <laughs> provided him with the funds to be able to travel at his leisure all around uh, Asia because the CIA and, and China for once agreed on something, which is it would be a good idea to get Kim Jong-un out, out before he did any more damage. We can relate to that in, in this country. Trump does pop up um, saying wonderful things about Kim Jong-un. Uh, that was before he decided that he didn't like him after all. 
So Assassins, a documentary about the murder of the brother of North Korean supreme leader in a crowded Malaysian airport, uh, pay-per-view all over the place. Now, now we need a break from true stories about assassinations. Can you recommend something completely different? I can recommend something completely different, but it's not going to cheer you up any. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a documentary by a first-time filmmaker named Lance Oppenheim. It's called Some Kind of Heaven. Um, And uh, it's not incidental that I think the executive producer or the producer is Darren Aronofsky, who makes made Black Swan and all other kinds of mother and uh, other kinds of very dyspeptic um, films. Uh, And it's about a retirement community in Florida um, called The Villages. It's for the healthy retired, um, which is why there are many activities like synchronized swimming, golf cart parades synchronized also, and an endless round of activities that would exhaust somebody of 20. Now... (laughs) This place is either some people is some people's idea of paradise and other uh, others of hell. I think I would find it hellish, and I kept thinking of Fran Lebowitz, who would have had a field day with it. Yes. But it is true that many people are very happy um, in this kind of retirement village. You know, there's other people around. They have instant neighbors. It's very safe. It's a, it's a gated community. Um, there's lots going on. And the problem with the documentary is it focuses on three sets of people who are utterly miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a problem because it's, it, it sounds rather condescending. Um, the three sets are quite fascinating. One is a couple who have been married for 47 years uh, and came to this retirement community to have fun for the rest of their life. He become, uh, Their names are Anne and Reggie, and uh, she's quite a, a gentle soul who's very determined to make her marriage work after 47 years. And uh, he... Uh, it goes into some kind of overdrive um, that gets him arrested for cocaine possession. Oh dear. Um, in his, I don't know, 70s, 80s. And of course this, you know, plays havoc with the, with the marriage and so on. It's a, they're a very fascinating couple to talk about, but I don't see that their problems have really much to do with the community in which they're living. <laughs> um, they seem to be selected for the fact that they're in agony, especially the wife who is trying to cope with, with all of this because he becomes psychotic, hits himself with a rock and oh dear. Uh, all kinds of things. So it feels um, voyeuristic and, and uh, condescending in unpleasant ways. Um, the second is uh, is Dennis, who was a former handyman to the stars, but now he's living in his van and looking for a wealthy woman in the villages that he can live off. Um, and uh, he's kind of a, a sad story because he wants to find somebody to settle down with and he's given an opportunity to do so. Um, he's not obviously in the community, but he's a kind of predator on it. 
because he's looking for all these women. And one of the amusing things about the film is that all these women are onto him. (laughs) (laughs) And they keep egging him on to tell his sad story. And and then at the end of it, they say, okay, that's enough. (laughs) In fact, he finds an old girlfriend to move in with, but um, this guy is a rover. And uh, he asked us again, it's not clear that this derives from the community itself. So I don't see the connection. Um, The third is an extremely likable woman uh, from Boston named Barbara. Uh, She looks, I have a multitude of cousins in Boston and she looks like one of my cousins who's a widow, a recent widow. Her husband, she moved with her husband to the retirement community uh now he's gone and she has to work in the community as well as living there and she would like to meet somebody else um but it's not having much success at doing that until she does meet somebody and i um i i don't want to spoil um where that goes uh but the problem in every case is making a connection between their rather personal miseries and the retirement village for which um, Lance Oppenheim, the director, seems to have a rather unseemly unseemly contempt. Um, He's very young. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I I think that if, you know, this purports to be some kind of heaven, he needed to portray some people for whom it really was some kind of heaven. So some kind of of heaven, the documentary about what's the, they say it's the world's largest retirement community. This place place called the villages in Florida. I understand this is also a a pay-per-view on iTunes, Google play, Fandango now, Voodoo and some other places. Yes. Yeah. We have time for one more. Yes. I just want to give a a mention to a lovely little film that is Switzerland's, um, candidate for best foreign film this year. It's called My Little Sister, directed by two women, Stephanie Schuart and Veronique Reynaud. Um, and it can be seen in virtual cinemas locally at Lemley, on the Lemley Virtual Cinema website. And it's, it's, it's a very simple story about two adult twins, one of whom falls deathly ill. Uh, and the other one, his sister, um, gives up really her married life and her career to try um, and help her brother through his last days. It doesn't matter that I'm giving that away because this is not a plot-heavy movie. What's remarkable about it, other than the delicacy with which it's achieved by the two directors, um, is that it has two top-notch European actors playing the twins. One is Nina Huss, who, um, if you've seen the films of of, uh, German um, director Christian Petzold, like Barbara or Phoenix, she's she was really his muse, and she's a marvelous German actress. And the other is Lars Eidinger. Um, we've we've come across him before uh, in Berlin, uh, Babylon, where he plays the 
the crazed son and millionaire. Um, and he is marvelous. He's a, a rager and a roarer who can't accept his fate. Uh, and his sister has a much more pacific temperament, although she's also a playwright. Uh, and it's a beautifully handled um, account of what happens to the two of them, because in a way, both their lives are upended. Um, but one of them finds a way to um, express that creatively. So I recommend it. Um, and it plays on Lemley. Assassins, Some Kind of Heaven, and My Little Sister. Ella Taylor talks about Virus Time TV every week on Living in the USA. Thank you, Ella. You're welcome, John. I'm living it up in Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.